Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, citizen pushback from Kamloops to Surrey. Communities across BC rally for public safety. Plus, all the latest on the Surrey police saga as the community awaits the province's big decision on Friday. And carpool karaoke. Late night talk show host James Corden bows out after eight years on the air. Is it time to finally turn off the lights for a permanently changed late night world? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Organizers are calling them the Enough is Enough rallies and they're occurring throughout British Columbia today from Victoria to Kamloops to Dawson Creek. Citizen groups say they want to highlight their concerns over random violence, drug addiction and homelessness. The bottom line, these rallies are occurring throughout the province but people are saying to elected officials they are not feeling safe in their communities. Crowds gathered over the noon hour at the legislature in Victoria as well as Penticton, Prince George and also in Nanaimo as well. Colin Middleton, who is a Nanaimo crime activist, spoke to my colleague Mike Smith earlier today. Take a listen uh, to Mr. Middleton as he describes the situation in Nanaimo. Downtown Nanaimo in particular, I mean, every every week, you know, there's some there's more more uh, glass being broken of businesses and break-ins. And and uh, earlier this week, the Vault Cafe, which is like it's like the community meeting place in downtown Nanaimo. Everybody loves this this uh, cafe. All walks of life. They are so hospitable, so um, uh, welcoming to to everybody. And and they keep getting broken into and their windows smashed. Yeah. And so it, and and so it just kind of exemplifies, you know, it's there's no rhyme or reason to this. Like some of this is just destruction. Yeah. And and um you know, we're we're trying to band together to to stop it. And it wasn't just in Nanaimo, of course. Uh, Dwayne Dilworth is an anti-crime activist in the community of Dawson Creek, located in the northeast of our province. Uh, they are planning a rally tonight uh, at 6 p.m. Take a listen to Mr. Dilworth as he spoke to our Mike Smith earlier today. Enough is enough. Uh, when children can't go to the park because they're scared, they're finding fentanyl. Uh, for example, the young girl in Nanaimo that just found a bag of fentanyl. And uh, so when police can't serve and protect, when judges can't use their judgment, when you have to sleep with one eye open, when paramedics have to wear body armor, just enough is enough and we need some change. That was Dwayne Dilworth, who is uh, an activist in the community of Dawson Creek, and I said they are planning uh, their rally tonight. Another community that is uh, planning uh, a rally tonight is the community of Surrey. Joining me now is Depinder Saran. She is a registered nurse and a community activist for One Voice Canada. Uh, Ms. Saran, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on air, Jeff. Um, what has motivated you? You're a registered nurse. You work within the healthcare system. What motivated you to get involved? Well, um, I've, you know, I've just been always a community activist, always helping out where I can in terms of advocating for our community at a large level, um, especially when it comes to international students and migrants recently in the last few years. Um, it's, you know, as the others have mentioned in their sort of um, 
speeches about the concerns they have. Surrey has lots of concerns. Mm-hmm. We all know that. You know, we're constantly in the papers. We're constantly on the news on different subject matters. Um, when it comes to Surrey as a whole, I mean, first of all, we're dealing with the public safety. And public safety, when you, you know, put that word out, people always think of automatic law enforcement policing. And it, it kind of wraps around there. But it, that's not... That's just the base of it. That's one aspect of it. That's one very important aspect of it, which Surrey is missing right now. And I know we're going to possibly hear um, reviews tomorrow as to what may take place because we're in the middle of transitions of policing and so much going on. And here the public is concerned about their safety at risk in the meantime, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We've had recent youth uh, violence going on. We've had, uh, you know, there's fights on the street. People viral video me all the time. There's, um, you know, people on transit getting stabbed. That's one aspect. And then we've got the mental health aspects. Like, there is a lot of mental health going on in the communities. There's counsellors burnt out and tired of trying to help, but without lack of funds, right? And mm-hmm. then there is um, underlying exploitation happening within our province and across the country. But, like, if we're talking about Surrey alone, we, as One Voice Canada, deal with exploitation all the time for when it comes to migrants and international students. And so it's a layer upon layer that's happening of public safety here and underserved seniors. And then we look at the homelessness and then we look at the addiction. It's almost like a domino effect, one leading to the other. You know, um, when you have mental health involved, you're going to have addictions, possibly. You're going to have homelessness, possibly. You're going to see other complex issues involved in that, whether it's exploitation. And then you have um, people when they aren't in the right state of mind, you know, possibly being violent as well out there. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a complex layers and layers building here and it needs to be strategically taken care of. Is there one part of Surrey though? Is it one part of Surrey that you see that is hit harder uh, or is it spread throughout the community? Well, I mean, there's certain pockets of Surrey that are more so, but it's generally a spread kind of concern all around when I talk to public, when I talk to youth, when I talk to seniors, you know, Uh, as some of them have mentioned needles and drugs and, um, you know, other things going on. And so, it really needs to be, we need to tactfully, as a province, as a city, um, come and come together and develop something strategically that's going to work for us. Surrey is growing in rapid, it's growing really fast, right? Mm-hmm. And we have like 1,000 to 1,200 people move in, as we've all known from the stats in the past, every month. And so if, we're, if we want to tackle these concerns, what we've decided as a team today is that you know, when we do this rally, the outcome that we are looking for is, number one, government officials listening to us, yes, at all levels, um, municipal, provincial, and federal. And the other uh, thing that we would like out of this is we are going to be forming a three sa- uh, public safety committee, mm-hmm. um, which going forward will be acting on behalf of the residents and citizens of Surrey uh, to advocate going forward. And we're hoping to get this all set up by fall, uh, although we'll accept volunteers who want to come on board with us starting now. Is that independent so, from City Hall? Like this is uh, just volunteers yes. a group getting together, residents getting together at, at, a, at a grassroots level. This has got nothing to do with uh, City Hall whatsoever. Right. True. So it's all of us, either leaders who are already leading in the community and have the expertise and, you know, sort of a, ability to maybe advocate on behalf of Surrey citizens. And it's also, we are going to be having some residents on board who are just general citizens who have their concerns but do have that background we would be doing different background checks for anybody coming on board onto this committee it would be it would involve eight to ten people and we will select that committee ourselves so it'll be an independent committee 
that we will be forming by fall. And when you do that, who would you be speaking to? You're going to advocate, obviously, for straight for streets. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess, uh, you know, uh, treatment for drugs, mental health addiction. Uh, uh, but who would you be speaking to? Is this taking your concerns to your local MLAs, City Hall, all of the above, police? How would you work with... Uh, All the... of the above, to be honest, because when you're needing uh, to tactically, um, you know, sort of take care of issues, I mean, we do this with One Voice Canada anyway. We collaborate with many, many organizations and many individuals. And so this is kind of taking that same sort of theme and saying, OK, we are going to now address this with each. Uh, I mean, we on the committee, we would have people in their expert fields from different areas, mental health, housing, um, addictions, you know, crime prevention. Uh, I'm myself as a healthcare. So we would have different individuals with their background and expertise on this committee to bring forward any concerns. And as a collective, we are able to address things at a larger level. Um, there's been much talk about uh, the revolving door nature of our court system, catch and release, uh, as our opposition uh, party has been stating. Is this a law enforcement issue in your mind, or is this about treatment and drugs, or a little of both? Because, you know, the part of me that says, look, we, we do need to spend more money on mental health and addiction, but there's a part of me also that believes there is a bit of ca- compassion fatigue out there as well, that we just need our courts uh, to... L- put bad people in jail and keep them there. And there seems to be no sort of repercussion for some of the deeds that they are involved in. How do you see this problem? How do you see us solving it? Well, I mean, repeat offenders, we all know. I mean, unless, you know, you have to, it's case by case, to be honest, because you really have to sort of tackle the, what is causing them to repeat and offend? And, you know, what is it? Is it uh, some mental health that they have involved? Is it the addiction side? Is it that they're just generally like anger management and other things going on, right? Um, what kind of strategies we can put in place to uh, assist them before we release them and see if they're capable of even being in the community and not um, repeating their offenses. But uh, it's it's literally case by case, I would say. But overall, yes, we are letting out repeat offenders way too soon. I feel like, you know, we uh, the law here is so slack. Um, people can come and do things to others and get away with it. And I, that's where One Voice really advocates even on heavily on the exploitation side because we have seen a lot of that happening to students, to migrants, and we finally, finally were able to put our foot down and say, no, no, this is not going to happen anymore. We are going to now address this at a larger level in, the, in society. Did you ever think you'd be doing this, organizing a rally uh, for tonight and then putting together a community a safety committee of uh, uh, volunteers at a grassroots level? I mean, did you think you'd be doing all of this uh, at this time in a sort of a post-COVID world? Well, no, I didn't, but I think it's a great time period to be doing this because, um, you know, as we know, Surrey tomorrow has possibly a decision coming when it comes to their policing. We know that the MLAs and MPs are sitting in their houses and, and you know, certain debates going on, and hopefully um, at one point or another elections are coming up. I don't know when that will be, but it's kind of the timing is great for all of this right now, and I'm really happy it's just falling in place because we need to tackle it you know, one city at a time, one community at a time, and collectively as BC and then, you know, across Canada, we're all seeing similar issues. It's not just BC. I mean, in Ontario, somebody messaged me today, there was like 119 charges laid for thefts that are happening with stolen cars. And so just these small little things that are creating big problems in society, you know, mm-hmm. so 
it's it it says a whole if you want to work and tackle something you have to start you know grassroots base level work your way up obviously but at least you can identify the different catered needs that are required in each community and across the province depender thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it good luck with your rally today Thank you so much. Uh, and also, uh, Karen Reed, Surrey Crime Prevention, is organizing with us as well. And so she has similar messaging. And I just wanted to address that her volunteers do a great job. And um, they do try to make public transit safe for everyone. 6 p.m. Holland Park tonight in Surrey, right? Right. Correct. All right. I, uh, all the best here. Yeah. All Thank right. you. Let's talk ICBC. Our public insurer has always been a bit of a political football. In the past five years, we've heard terms like dumpster fire to describe uh, its finances. Since it's moved to a no-fault system, the present NDP government has been quick to mention the rebate checks the British Columbians have received and essentially putting out the dumpster fire. But it's not that simple. ICBC is a very complex uh, um, uh, public insurer set up by the IC, uh, set up by the NDP government in the early 1970s. Joining me now to talk a little bit about its finances is Richard McCandless. He's a retired BC government policy manager uh, and uh, has spent a lot of time looking at ICBC finances. Uh, Mr. McCandless, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, Jeff. Um, first and foremost, how would you describe the present finances for ICBC moving forward? Well, they certainly stabilized from what they were, say, in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the amount of money that's going out in claims costs has dropped dramatically, and that's due to the switch to the no-fault model mm-hmm. from from the previous tort model. Which uh, and the main savings there is uh, uh, the cost of pain and suffering, which is. Uh, pretty much out of the equation now. Mm-hmm. And there's been many stories of people who have not been happy with the system, but it, 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 but it, I guess ICBC was following the lead of many other uh, insurers across this country. Um, yeah, we, we were the last, BC was the last province to move away from the full tort model. Mm-hmm. All the other provinces have done it much earlier. Uh, is it, you're saying the, system, the, the finances are stable. Uh, there were articles late uh, last year about potential deficit, uh, perhaps uh, investment challenges that ICBC had. Uh, overall, it, is it in a better place today? Yeah, it's in a far better place. They're still uh, having some issues as far as I'm concerned about forecasting their claims costs and also um, forecasting the future value of their investments. Now, none of those are easy to do, but um, I think ICBC could do a better job of them compared to what they have been doing. Why haven't they been able to improve on those areas? Partly, I think it's because the uh, any, any savings or losses just go back into the operation. It's not like the money goes to the taxpayer. Uh, it's all within uh, ICBC. So if you you have a nice profit at the end of one year that adds to their capital reserve, and if you have a loss that takes away from the capital reserve. Mm-hmm. So when you sift all that out, the key thing to understand about ICBC is how good is their what what's the health of their capital reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, is ICBC always going to be always going to be in this position only simply because it is a public insurer and it is ultimately answerable to elected officials and their whims? Yes, <laughs> that's what, that's the downside of, of having a public auto insurer. Now, but looking at other provinces, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, they don't seem to have the degree anywhere near the degree of political inf- interference that we've had in BC since the very beginning of ICBC. 
that just goes with the territory. Why is that, see. though? Why, why is that? I mean, you, you've, you've worked in the public service, so you've gone through a few, few governments uh, in the past and, and many, uh, I'm sure, politicians as well. Why do you think our political culture, uh, BC Liberal, BC United, uh, NDP, whatever it may be, different era, different time, yeah. uh, why do you think that is in our political culture, that we need to meddle in ICBC? Yeah, it's not just ICBC. They like to meddle with hydro, too. Um, not to mention BC Ferries as well. <laughs> yeah. it's It seems to be something here about, I don't know if it's a populist trend or, or what, but, of course, ICBC affects, like hydro does, affects uh, pretty much every voting household in the province. Uh, so, therefore, changes do have an impact. Yeah. But um, Saskatchewan, I, I don't know, they just... Maybe there's more uh, trust in their organizations in those provinces than there is here. Um, but but maybe the government's never given the organizations, and I'm including the Utilities Commission in this, mm-hmm. because they're supposed to oversee the basic insurance. But the government doesn't really let them do that. Um, they have too many cabinet orders to the Utilities Commission telling them what do, to do. Do you think the BC Ferries model prior to uh, the latest uh, last year, of the last year, BC Ferries model may be changing a little bit, but certainly the, over the past few years, we've had sort of a an independent ferry system, as independent I guess yeah. as it can get, but it's been left alone to raise yep. rates when it's required based on market conditions and make decisions without political meddling. Do you think ICBC needs a similar model? I think it would help. Um, I, I think... The model was there. It's the Utilities Commission is supposed to be the one overseeing the basic insurance. And, and in fact, in other provinces, I think Saskatchewan, they let them look at the optional as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the model's there. It's just the politicians, unfortunately, don't want to let these uh, appointed officials uh, do their jobs, mm-hmm. do, do what they're paid to do. Uh, there's been many... Um a complaint that we need to get rid of it, yeah, that in the third decade of the 21st century, bring in private insurance, bring in competition, get away, government needs to get out of the, out of the way, uh, doesn't need to be in the insurance business, uh, like so many other jurisdictions. Uh, do you think that's going to still, that, that debate, that conversation will still remain even with, let's say, rates that have been relatively flat, even to the point where rebates have been coming back to uh, taxpayers? Yeah. Do you think that's still going to continue? Not just, it's, not just, it's not just rebates. I mean, our Premiums dropped by an average of 20, 25 percent mm-hmm, when we mm-hmm. switched to the no-fault. Now, putting it out to private sector, would they still do the no-fault? I don't know. Uh, I don't support um, the government creating a monopoly. Of, you know, we have to buy auto insurance. It's compulsory. Mm-hmm. So you're giving this to the private sector. I don't, I don't support that model. Um, if it's truly, um, you know, choice of the individual, that may be something that go to the private sector, but this is not. This is compulsory. Mm-hmm. So you're giving market share to the private sector for, for what? Uh, do you see any change to the no-fault system? Uh, I'm not saying we, we go back to the, the old system, but there's still a lot of pressure from trial lawyers and many others, and, and then from uh, people who have been victims of accidents saying they're not getting the care that they uh, hope to get, number one, and many have said, look, uh, in the old system, yes, you have trial lawyers involved, but they are able to uh, win compensation so victims can decide what their treatment looks like uh, and how they wish it 
how they wish to be treated. Uh, a no-fault system sort of sends you into a big, giant bureaucracy, and, and there have been a myriad of stories saying yeah. that, look, it, this isn't, doesn't work for the, for the consumer. Do you see any sort of tweaking of this system or, or even reverting back to the old system? Well, it's too certain to talk about reverting back. I, I think that there may be tweaking down the road, I think. And this, this was recognized by... Uh, then Attorney General Eby when he brought it in. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they said this is one of the key things, this cultural change at ICBC that has to take place, where it's now uh, a care model. They emphasize this enhanced care. Mm -hmm. It's care versus just litigation in the courts. Um, and it remains to be seen um, if they're going to be responsive enough to to deal with these matters as they arise. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. McCandless, our time has run out. I look, look forward to having you on the show again. I know you, you focus not only your time and energy on ICBC, but energy as well. Uh, I do wish to have you on the program again, talk a little bit of LNG and BC Hydro as well. But thank you yeah. for your time today. All right. Thank you. I know many of you uh, probably have uh, been visiting your local grocery store and, and um, uh, have seen a lot of food bank hampers being offered for sale. So um, you and many other shoppers like you can help support their local food banks. Uh, today, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank has also said, wait a minute here. There are other ways to support that food bank. And I wanted to get, a, get more information from them in regards to these uh, food hampers that are being offered at grocery stores. Joining me now is uh, David Long, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. David, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Thanks very much indeed for having me on. Yeah, I, it's an interesting um, uh, issue, and I know the grocery stores are, are coming at it to, aid it to to help as well. But walk me through a little bit about these food hampers that are being uh, offered by grocery stores and some of your concerns. Um, well, well, first and foremost, the, you know, the grocery chains, they do a phenomenal job in supporting food banks uh, like myself mm -hmm. um, throughout the year. Um, and, and really what we wanted to do, we, we had somebody approach us uh, that bought one of these bags, uh, for, it was a $10 bag, and they were just, you know, they had some questions about it, and it really resonated with me that we, I really wanted just to kind of put our side out there sort of as an educational part for the public. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these $10 bags that the, you know, the grocery stores are doing. Uh, first and foremost, I would say that, you know, that there's, there's a huge variety of these bags out there, and some of them are, are wonderful and, 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 and really good. But there are a couple of bags out there, sort of the brown paper bag that are, are stapled closed, mm -hmm. and the public really don't know what's in them. Um, and we stopped doing public food drives a, a couple of years ago, and really we've made a lot of changes at the food bank because really our focus is healthy food. Uh, and so all we're saying is, you know, before you would buy one of these bags, just think about it, think twice, uh, and maybe there's a better way, which is either maybe at the till of the grocery store to donate on, uh, as you can, mm -hmm. or or on our on the food bank's website for themselves and uh, donate some money there because really. The big push right now is towards fresh food and getting proper nutritious food for people. So when you go and purchase one of these hampers at your grocery store, I think they're, as you said, 10 to $20. And so inside you'd find uh, food, peanut butter, I guess pasta, um, soups and stuff like that. Um, and then including, I guess, their hygiene items as well, like soap and toothpaste. Uh, your argument is that, look, uh, it's better to donate that money to the food bank because you are able to maximize that donation compared to, let's say, a grocery store? No, absolutely. Um, I, could, I could probably purchase twice what's in one of those bags. Uh, and as I say, we purchase a lot of fresh, uh, I distribute a lot of fresh food now. So 
when five years ago when I started the food bank, we were distributing maybe 20% of what we distributed was fresh, perishable. And now we're up to sort of 65%. And the goal is to get it above 70% because everybody deserves to have fresh food. And, uh, and a lot of the f- items that you find in these bags are sort of uh, high sodium, the instant noodles. And people that are having a tough time uh, and, and need the use of a food bank, those are actually the ingredients or the, those are the items and the ingredients that they can actually afford to buy. Uh, and this is why we've kind of changed the model towards a lot more fresh, the things that they can't afford to buy. Uh, yeah. And with the buying power we have and the relationships we have with farmers, uh, you know, we, we can supply that. It does, in, 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 to a certain degree, undermine what the food bank is doing. What I mean by that, and, and it's, it's not a judge, judgment thing, but at the end of the day, the products that you're purchasing for that 10 or $15 hamper, uh, the grocery store is still making a profit, I'm assuming, off that and, and maybe a bit of a discount, whatever it may be. But that you're still paying retail for those items when they can go come to you, and I'm sure you're able to, with your purchasing power, be able to strike a much better deal. No, absolutely. We, our, our dollar goes a lot farther. Um, we have a buying power. You know, it, it depends on the item, for example, of, of what we buy fresh. You know, Jazz, you and I go into a, a grocery store. Uh, I was in one on the weekend, and apples are anywhere from you know two dollars and fifty cents, three dollars a pound. Uh, I can buy fresh apples from the Okanagan from farmers directly for about 45, 50 cents a pound. So, you know, five, six times cheaper. The grocery stores don't need to be doing this. I mean, if they'd want to help, one would argue they could, uh, you know, work with you, as you say, a barcode in regards to donations or even donate some of that food to the food bank. And perhaps they do already. But uh, you feel better when you purchase it there. And I get that. But you're still paying retail, as you say, right? Uh, yeah, they, they would be. I'm, I'm quite sure they would be paying retail. Um, but again, it's uh, you know the, the, our buying power and what we can actually get for that for those dollars uh, goes a lot further. Mm-hmm. And it's actually um, we create. You know, people don't really realize, but at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, we actually create menus two or three weeks out, and we actually create menus where people can can build complete meals. And a lot of these items really don't fit into some of the menus that we have, uh, that, that we're doing and that we're offering now. Mm-hmm. Uh, speak to me a little bit about um, this present moment. Uh, we know inflation has um, created significant difficulty for residents. Uh, it is heading in the right direction. It is lowering, but it is still there. Uh, we are still paying a lot, and food prices especially. Um, give me a sense. Have you seen any easing of demand uh, as the inflation rate slowly decreases? Uh, no, not as yet. Um, that would be my, my wish, and my hope would be that uh, you know we, we would see a decrease in demand, but uh, our numbers are, have jumped dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, from three years ago, you know, nine thousand clients to right now between sixteen and seventeen thousand clients. And that's per um, month or per day? What are those? That's per that's per month. Per month. Um, okay. And so, a dramatic increase in the fact that our budget for next year is, is sort of saying we're maybe if we keep these numbers continuing in this trend up to about nineteen thousand people. So just think Rogers Arena hockey game. Yeah. That's what we're feeding. Wow. Uh, now, are you planning to meet these grocery stores or send them any sort of information in regards to, look, there's better ways to, to help? No, absolutely. We, I have great relationships with the grocery stores. And, you know, one of our, one of our biggest donors is Loblaws, and they, they really are fantastic. Uh, and, and they give us a lot of donated fresh food as well. Uh, and we have one of these ongoing conversations uh, about how do we, you know, it's, it's like anything jazz. It's, you know, things change, things, you know, hopefully improve and get better. And this is what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. David, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
You're very welcome, Jess. Thanks and, for having and, me on. And before you go, if people wanted to make a donation, uh, is there a particular number or website they can go to? Just go to the, the Greater Vancouver uh, Food Bank website, foodbank.bc.ca. Um, you can make a, a, a donation on that, uh, on the website right there. Appreciate that. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Jazz. Take care. James Corden winds down his eight-year tenure as host of The Late Late Show uh, with a primetime special that will uh, air tonight. Uh, the question I guess we can all ask, uh, is anybody talking about this or has anybody noticed? It's certainly a big deal for CBS. It's uh, marking the occasion with a 20-plus hours of live countdown of special moments for the show um, that are on TikTok. Of course, you can have the CBS primetime special. Uh, But, you know, you would think the departure of a late-night talk show host would be a big event. I think Johnny Carson or David Letterman. This feels more like a footnote uh, in many cases. Uh, You know, before the internet, even before cable, Johnny Carson could draw 10 10 million viewers a show. Uh, now, as competition is obviously mounted, David Letterman uh, would average about 3 to 5 million uh, viewers a show. Well, today, if you take all the shows, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, all three hosts together reach 5 million viewers. Uh, certainly, things have changed, but it's going to be quite the event tonight. Uh, singer Adele, a Brit, just like Mr. Corden, uh, woke him up recently, and they sh- uh, filmed one of their uh, signature carpool karaoke um, uh, segments. Uh, they chatted about the last eight years as well. Uh, take a listen. I'm actually not a brilliant driver. So I know you're not a brilliant driver. <laughs> I'm well aware of this. I also can't sing without closing my eyes, so... Oh, well, this is yeah. brilliant. This so... is going to be great. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing this. Do you know the way? I do know the way, actually. All right, go it's on actually then. pretty simple. There we go. Sunset. Oh, that's a car. That's a car. <laughs> I can't believe you just pulled out of your drive and nearly crashed. This is it. How the last feeling? carpool. I'm excited and scared yeah, in equal measure. I don't know. It's been a crazy eight years. Yeah. In one sense, it feels like it's gone like that. And yeah. then in another sense, I feel like I don't really remember what life Absolutely. Also, I've, 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 I've never lived in L.A. without you guys, so I'm, like, a bit nervous about it, to be honest with you. That is singer Adele with James Corden, who is uh, retiring after eight years on American television and, as he said, moving back to London. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Corden's departure, retirement, whatever you wish to call it, and the broader issue of late-night TV. Uh, Rick Forchuk is, of course, a TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. Rick, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz, my pleasure. So is uh, this the footnote uh, I've described it as? Is that a, is that a fair uh, description? I think it is. I think it is a footnote. Um, you made a very, very good point earlier, uh, because fragmentation, uh, the proliferation of channels, has re- it's created a situation where uh, there are just not that many people that can watch any particular show. So the days of Johnny Carson drawing 10 million viewers are long gone and Letterman, and Leno, and so on and so forth. Corden is interesting. Um, He took over in 2015 from Craig Ferguson. Uh, He has done 1,100 shows since that time. Uh, He did try to sort of revamp the talk show format. Instead of being a guy sitting behind a desk with a microphone in front of him, he had all of his guests all over the place, and he was off in the corner, sometimes standing, sometimes sitting, and everybody was talking. It was a free-for-all. Carpool karaoke... Uh, which is his signature piece, Adele, for sure. The one that stands out in my memory most of all is Sir Paul McCartney uh, doing carpool karaoke and then um, Corden going to the U.K. and having McCartney 
do a concert in a pub. That was really classic television. And um, Corden himself says he's not really retiring, but rather he says he never expected that the talk show format was going to be his final hurrah. Uh, He's going to do other things. So he's gone back home to the U.K. where he had been a sitcom star and writer beforehand uh, to do something new. Mm -hmm. Um, He hasn't really, I I think, had the impact because it's, uh, you know, the the title says it all, The Late Late Show. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people stay up to watch James Corden. Uh, He's an interesting guy. He's a controversial character. But I I think, again, back to your original point, I think it's a blip. I think it's a footnote. I don't think it's a huge deal, although tonight's special, one hour from 10 to 11 on CBS, and then a two-hour special with Corden's final show, that would be worth watching, I think, Jazz. Yeah, I find it interesting that tonight's the special, and and, uh, yet uh, we are running uh, uh, clips from uh, his last carpool karaoke with singer Adele, which they released on Monday, which in many ways talks about the the nature of present-day broadcasting and entertainment, you have the sort of linear show, the show that airs, the original show that airs at at, at 12.30, uh, and then you've got this lucrative little carpool karaoke that is turned into its own program, which they release on YouTube as well after it's aired on the first, on the show, it's uh, the original show. I guess that's how these shows sort of find relevance now. There's the original show that very few people are watching now, but they find life on social media, on YouTube, and it's not just one clip, but it may be, here's 15 different clips from that one-hour show. I guess that's the relevance that they're looking for now. Yeah, it is, and it's the it's the new way of presenting television. You and I have talked about this before in the past. The fact that younger viewers typically are not likely to record and then watch a complete show, mm-hmm. nor are they likely to stay up and watch the whole show, but rather they listen to what social media is saying, what their friends are saying. They go to YouTube the next day, and they check out the highlights. And uh, yeah, that's that's just part of the way things are are today. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking back even before Johnny Carson, you had uh, I think Jack Parr prior to that. The the yes. talk show format, uh, to my understanding, the first talk show, uh, late night talk show, uh, aired in nineteen thirty eight. I mean, you go all the way back to Bob Hope, but the the format has essentially been the same. A uh, host comes out, probably a monologue, sit behind a desk, interview some guests, crack some jokes with your sidekick. Um, it, once these talk show hosts, uh, um, uh, the present uh, show with Mr. Corden, but add in Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Tim Trevor Fo- Noah uh, has left as well. Do you think these shows last or do they just look at a different format, a cheaper format? And that essentially the, the, the traditional talk show is gone. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the traditional talk show is gone, and if not gone, certainly on the way out. Uh, Each new host brings his or her own spin to the thing. Uh, Corden has his carpool karaoke thing, and he's got his own brand of humor, so he takes the show in one way. Uh, Stephen Colbert, same thing. He does does his own skill set, his commentary on the news of the day, and who the next host will be. And what the deal will be, what kind of gig it'll be, is anybody's guess. But I think the uh, standard format is finished, and it's now whatever works. Yeah, and and you... whatever works for a time, Jazz, just for a time. Yeah. Uh, we're no longer going to see the uh, decades-long Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, David Letterman kind of situation. It's going to change rapidly, I think. Yeah, and I know they're trying to replicate it to a certain degree on streaming now. I think they've had Hassan Minaj do do, do, a, do a show. Uh, you had Chelsea Handler doing a talk show, but they didn't last either. Well, that's right, uh, because uh, ratings are the name of the game, 
And if you can't get people to uh, go to that site to show up to make the ratings work, then you don't get to stay. And that's part of the problem. And again, it's back to that fragmentation of the market. There are so many places you can get this kind of entertainment. And it's very, very hard for a network, whether it be CBS or NBC or anybody else, to really pull the kind of numbers necessary to keep these things on the air for a long time. So I think we're in the midst, as with so many things in the world of television, we're in the midst of an evolution and a revolution. Things are going to change quite rapidly. And um, much of that is driven by social media and by the way younger people get their entertainment. Uh, Not so much older people. They're fairly static. But younger people get their entertainment in different ways, Jazz. I remember the whole battle over uh, Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno and David Letterman. I mean, it it was quite enthralling. Um, This is front page news, made the New York Times. And and now this is, as you you said, it is is, uh, um, a footnote at the end of the day compared to what we we used to talk about 10 or 15 years ago. The Times, as they say, certainly are a change. And thanks so much, Rick. Thank you, Jazz. Tomorrow, the provincial government is set to release um, their decision on whether or not Surrey will move forward with the Surrey Police Service or will remain with the Surrey RCMP. Uh, This is probably the longest-running soap opera since probably Days of Our Lives, and it has been ongoing, and the man who's been following it from Victoria is, of course, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Jazz. So, uh, I know it's a hard one to predict, and uh, you, you try to read the tea leaves as best as possible. What's your sense of what Mike Farnworth uh, has been going through over the last couple of weeks to get to the, the the announcement tomorrow. Well, he's told me this is the most difficult issue he's wrestled with since he became public safety minister, and that includes, and the more complicated issue, and that includes everything he went through in the pandemic. Keep in mind, he was the one who called the, the state of emergency, had a lot on his plate, but he says this has been the most complex situation and issue to try to resolve, and I'm not sure it can be resolved to, well, it won't be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. That's a very clear you have two real different uh, uh, points of view here. And you know, I've talked to him about how, you know, there's there's all sorts of plus and minuses on both sides of the of the ledger here. The RCMP, though, has a number of challenges, quite apart from Surrey, um, ongoing vacancy issues, uh, human resource issues, recruitment issues. The Nova Scotia shooting inquiry was absolutely condemned the RCMP and its culture. The Globe Mail, um, hardly a liberal organ, called for the abolishment of the RCMP in a hard-hitting editorial a couple weeks ago. You've got uh, five RCMP officers charged in Prince George, stemming from two being charged with manslaughter, three being charged with obstruction of justice of trying to cover up three officers. So there's been a whole lot of things going wrong for the RCMP in a relatively short time. There's a, a call for regional policing. You don't do that by allowing, continuing to have the RCMP make the biggest RCMP detachment in the country in Surrey. But then on the other hand, you've got an elected council has made a decision that they want to go back to the RCMP. And that can hardly be just discounted as nothing. That is a major point that Farnworth and the NDP cabinet has to wrestle with as well. So personally, I go back and forth on this every day, Jazz. One day, yeah, it makes sense to go with uh, Surrey Police Service. The next day, hmm, maybe they are going to go with the RCMP. I honestly don't know. And in terms of the media, I probably talked to Mike Farnworth about this more than anyone, and he is keeping his cards very close to his, his vest. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of this, beyond the policing issue, 
How much of this involves politics? And what I mean by that, there's an election coming, provincial election mandated for next year, next fall. Uh, there, as Brenda Locke has said, property tax increases because of this transition, potentially to SPS. Um, she is still wanting to halt this completely. Um, politics has to be part of the decision-making process here for Mr. Farnworth because his party uh, is the has won owns I guess most of the seats in Surrey, uh, barring two. I think the BC Liberals or BC United have. Um, politics is part of the decision-making process here, is it not? Oh, for sure. I'm not sure it's the end-all and be-all, but you can't discount it. Um, the NDP is the lion's share of seats in Surrey. Surrey is the veritable battleground BC come the next election. But it, it, talking to NDP MLAs, again, I get the sense that most of them probably would favor moving to the SPS, that they're sort of damned as they do, damned as they don't on the tax issue. Um, taxes are, gonna, are going up everywhere, um, whether you're transitioning to a new police force or not. They're just going up more in Surrey uh, than anywhere else. And sure, it could become a, a big issue in the, in the next campaign, but I don't get the sense that they're worried about that so much. Just keep in mind, the voter turnout, when this issue was front and center on the, on the public table, was very low in Surrey. When all everyone talked about was RCMP and or SPS, and very few people ended up voting less than 40 percent. Um, so I'm not sure it's the hot-button political issue um, that some people think it is. It could be, depending on how many people link any tax increase with what the decision is going to be made tomorrow when it's announced at 9.30 over here in Victoria by Mike Farnworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Premier Eby spoke on this issue, was asked about yep. this issue today in Delta. Let's listen to his comments from earlier today. How do they do this transition safely? What is required? What are the associated costs uh, so that they can make an informed decision? Um, I think uh, for myself, uh, and I'm sure uh, for many residents of Surrey, Surrey City Council, police, uh, that uh, you know we're all looking forward to this issue being resolved and to uh, moving on in Surrey. Uh, I, I'm very interested in that comment because he said that, uh, you know, how do you transition safely? Transition. What, is, what is required? Um, and he also said in today's uh, comments that, um, that, the, that this may not be the final step in the process. Do you think this may be a, a guide or Surrey needs to provide a guide as they transition? I don't know if it's SPS or, or RCMP, but it looks like there's, from based on those, that comment alone, that they want to still give Surrey the chance to decide finally which way they want to go to the point that they don't want to be making the final decision. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have picked up on that today, that first of all, he used the word transition. So what does that mean? Are we transitioning as they are? They have been transition, transitioning to SPS, or does it mean transitioning back to the RCMP? So the word, people have picked up on the word transition. And the buzz, Jazz, seems to be that maybe what we're getting is some conditional approval one way or another. That does, does our conditions set, our expectations set that they have to meet these, these bars of expectations for, to, for the transition, whatever it is, to continue, whether it means going back to the RCMP, done under conditions that have to be met, or going forward with SPS with conditions that have to be met along the way. So, yeah, the sense that I get, this is not going to be over tomorrow. This is uh, one way or another. Um, we're fairly far along. 400 people have been hired by Surrey Police Services. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's more than 700 at the RCMP. So this is a transition uh, that's been underway for some time, and it's fairly far down the road. 
So going back or forward, it's still going to take a lot of time, and I still think there's going to be some conditions attached one way or another. Yeah, one could argue, look, uh, what does transition for these SPSF officers to the RCMP look like? What what recruitment look like? Retention look like from the RCMP? I'm not saying that's the right, that's the decision. I'm saying you could look at it that way as well. And... You know, you have a mayor that is that is absolutely certain that she she feels she was elected based on that one mandate with the RCMP, uh, and uh, you know there's been talk about potentially legal challenges and issues as well. So somewhere along the way, the provincial government's going to have to decide. Like we want to put an end to this as well. We we do not want this to uh, to continue. Um, I'm very curious, Keith. Uh, Alberta has opened up the can of worms. I wouldn't call them a can of worms, but at least opened up the broader conversation about a police uh, a, a, a provincial police force. Um, just like Ontario has or Quebec has. Do you see a time where we will get to that conversation or you think we're a generation or two away from a BC police force? Well, I still think it's off in the distance. But if, if the move is made to Surrey Police Services, I think that will expedite the talk of regional policing. Um, if it's decided to go with RCMP, I think that's a real setback to establishing a provincial or regional police force. But if the decision is made to basically abandon the largest RCMP detachment in the entire country, that is a major statement. And that would push the RCMP, I think, in many places out of municipal policing and into national policing, sort of like the analogy has been made to the FBI. Get, stop writing tickets and, and seatbelt checks and do security and, and much more serious crime on a national basis. And I think that that road starts to get traveled down if the decision's made to go with away from the RCMP and with Surrey Police Services. But if the decision's made to go back to the RCMP, I think it's going to be very hard to undo that necessarily, um, unless there's such conditions attached to it that it makes it impossible for the RCMP to succeed. Mm-hmm. Does this also tell you that moving forward, when big decisions like this need to be made, Perhaps the provincial government shouldn't leave it to municipal politicians because it's a mess, and it should never have been handled the way it is. It is a total mess. I've never seen a bigger mess at the local level um, than what we're seeing with this. I mean, the, the vitriol and anger and rhetoric is unmatched uh, in this, with both sides really going after each other. And it's, um, I mean, it's fascinating to watch, but um, it's uh, it's been dumped on the provincial government in a way which I don't think Mike Farnworth and NDP envisioned when they got into power back in 2017 that something like this would be foist on them. Yeah, it is. It is you know, just covering it on our end, I, I just find it fascinates me that uh, they've allowed it to get to this point. And, and we're not just talking about, you know, somebody made a bad decision here or there. There are tens of millions of dollars that have been spent, and it ultimately is has to be paid by the taxpayers. So they're deep into it now, and somehow, some way, uh, they've got to excrete themselves, whether you keep moving forward to the SBS or you go back to the RCMP, but somehow, Surrey, and Surrey taxpayers, most importantly. Not going to um, end tomorrow. It's not going to end tomorrow, that's for sure, but we will be following it tomorrow, that's we for will. sure. Keith, thanks for your time today. All right, take care. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.